Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sunday and Thursday nights are hot. Monday nights less so for the TV networks carrying NFL games, according to the Sports Business Daily. NBC averaging close to 24 million viewers for its Sunday night games to date, marking the best figure for an NFL primetime package through Week 8 since 1996. CBS, which has all of its games simulcast on NFL Network, has been averaging nearly 18 million viewers for its showing of Thursday night football, up about a million viewers for a package of games that featured a string of lopsided scores last season. ESPN is averaging 13.2 million viewers for its Monday night football games to date this year, down 6% from last year, but up from figures in both 2012 and 2013. NFL streaming, television, new media, internet is still the gold standard for all professional sports. Oh my gosh. Four replacing foul ball at Petco Park. Top golf brand Callaway teamed up with the San Diego Padres to provide golf on the baseball diamond. The creative course, comprising nine par three holes crisscrossing the park, sold out all of its initial public tee times within the first three hours of going online for $50 per person, according to local media reports. Two days were added to help accommodate the over 1,000 parked on a waiting list, meaning 1,600 or more golfers were swinging for the fence at Petco Park in the home base of Phil Mickelson. As a result of the Padres' clever off-season innovation, other MLB teams have been in contact about bringing a similar event to their own parks, notably the Boston Red Sox and Texas Rangers. Also intrigued are NBA and NHL reps as teams and sponsors alike continually look for new ways to give fans a unique and unforgettable sports experience. Oh, he's had to clear. He's gone away. Saved. And MLS in Miami, real or not? Tim Lywicki, David Beckham's top negotiator, said this past weekend the owners of the private land needed for a soccer stadium in Miami, quote, probably will blow the deal up, according to local media sources. Lewicki warned that failing to negotiate with local landowners over the property within a few weeks could be the end of Beckham's push to bring his own MLS team to South Florida. The partnership continues to make progress with the city to purchase land across the street from Marlins Park and then transfer it to the Miami-Dade School Board, which would shield the new stadium from property taxes. Lewicki said that parallel negotiations to purchase six private parcels on the proposed stadium footprint have, quote, stalled as landowners haggle for unreasonable prices. Given the history of Fall Stadium and arena starts in South Florida over the last 30 years, all aspects of this deal should be carefully monitored as a reality check. Now to the former head of special events for the National Football League, who started his own company advising leagues and cities on events. Frank Zapovich, how are you? I'm doing great, Rick. Thank you. How are you? I am wonderful. Talk about the company first, and then we'll back and fill with NFL and otherwise. Talk about Fast sure. Traffic. Absolutely. Well, Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment is an uh, event management and consulting company. Uh, in many cases, it's not, it's not there to produce events, though, although it does that too. Uh, it's there to really advise people how to create 
better events from the things that they're already doing, uh, uh, really unsurfacing the potential in the, in the programs that they have in place, um, and has been doing that uh, internationally in, in the U.S., uh, Canada, and Australia. Give me a few ideas or clients or whatever you can say about the diversity of Frank Sapovitz after he kind of graduated the NHL, then the NFL, but now you're out on your own. Tell us about the out on your own stuff, then we'll back and fill. I, I think one of the most uh, uh, one of the most rewarding projects that I've I've worked on in in uh, recent year is uh, is for the National Rugby League in Sydney, Australia. Uh, they have a, a grand final. It's the it's probably the number two uh, sports event in uh, in the country, right behind their own uh, State of Origin series, which is a series of well, called them All Star Games, I guess, that happen throughout their season. Uh, the National Rugby League does a grand final in Sydney each year. Uh, I went to it a couple of years ago, and uh, one of the things I was asked was to look at it and see what kind of potential it had uh, to to generate more revenue, more impact, uh, more media. And, and frankly, what I found was it needed to do more for its fans. So uh, the NRL, this past uh, October, uh, staged their very first fan festival in Sydney Harbor. It's actually in Darling Harbor. Uh, and had 40,000 people attend in, in its very first incarnation for over the course of three days. Uh, tremendous success. The sponsors uh, see it as a great opportunity. They're already coming to the party for the 2016 NRL Grand Final. It's called NRL Nation. That's the name of the fan festival, and uh, I think it's the beginning of something very big out there. Well, and the thing, the commonality of this, Frank Sapovitz, uh, CEO, uh, President Fast Traffic uh, event, uh, company but uh with the nfl for a number of years the, the commonality here is that mega events are very important beyond just the sporting event itself which is a kind of unique and neat segue to the super bowl uh in super bowl one the uh, average nfl remember uh you remember uh the uh advertising price was about forty thousand dollars for a 30 second spot now we're approaching five million we can take the comparative statistics. It was on two networks, and you basically helped take it to where it is today. Uh, do people understand how big a um, an event, and not only that, what kind of a year-long task it is to make sure it's successful on a year-to-year basis in a different venue every year? Well, and I built it on the shoulders of, of some great people who were there for 40 years before I was. So I, I was there for 10 uh, and the Super Bowl did grow and became uh, became something even bigger than it was ten years ago. Uh, but the fact is that it, it's become an American cultural experience far more than the game itself, as you suggest. Uh, the fact is that that people watch the television program not just for the game; uh, they watch it for the commercials. Everybody knows that. And and this year, commercial time is up to about five million dollars for a thirty-second spot. Uh, they also watch it for the halftime show. That's become a, a an even more widely watched show than the than the game itself. In in many cases, before 1992, the halftime show was a time when people changed the channel to something else. Now they're now they're watching the show or actually tuning into the halftime show uh, just to watch that. Uh, I heard. The fact is, it's also a, a great fan event in the city in which it's held. And now there are not only parties for people who are well connected or people who are willing to spend the money, but uh, 
NFL experience has been around since 1992. It's grown to a a, a huge uh, 800,000 square foot interactive football theme park. And over the past few years, that's been uh, amplified and and, uh, complemented by a local fan event that's free out on the street called Super Bowl Boulevard or Super Bowl Central. Uh, Super Bowl Boulevard in New York uh, closed Broadway for a half a mile. And more than a, a million and a half people visited that in the course of four days. Frank, tell me, was there, in the ten years you were there, a magic moment, an aha moment, where people said, we're going to grow this exponentially? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Super Bowl, I guess, was your first one that you ran, Super Bowl 39? Uh, 40. I was Super there, Bowl but I, I ran 40. So for the first 40, obviously, you graciously mm-hmm. talk about building it, but... How did it get to be that big? I understand you're now mentioning some of the common areas of diversity that everybody can experience, but was there one magic moment, or did it just evolve? I think it evolved over time, but there was also a moment, I I, I guess, around Super Bowl 45 when uh, in Dallas and, and North Texas, where the Super Bowl was less than a great experience for people, um, and the the weather was terrible. Uh, the logistics didn't work because of the size of the market and the fact that you couldn't get around easily during very wintry weather, uh, far deeper winter than they had ever experienced uh, in the past. Um, seats that were not uh, ready for people to occupy. It was just an it, it was just a difficult experience for people who attended and and for people who worked there. Um, as a consequence, sponsors. Uh, Felt like they didn't have a great time. Uh, partners didn't ex- didn't experience uh, a great moments. Uh, the game was the game, and it was terrific. With Green Bay and, and Pittsburgh, just tremendous, and the Black Eyed Peas did a great show. Uh, but but it was very very difficult on people. And and ticket prices, as you said, uh, the economics keep growing. Ticket prices now are around three thousand dollars. Back in in at Super Bowl one, it was twelve dollars and fifty cents. So you really have to deliver something uh, that that is extraordinary um, because the Super Bowl demands that and the fans demand it and they deserve it. Um, so after that, uh, we fell back and said, what are the pieces that are missing that that would make this the great experience it's reputed to be and that often it is? And uh, everything from great fan service to... Uh, better logistics and better movement around the marketplace, but also programming. Uh, the introduction of NFL House, uh, which is a, a sponsor oasis, if you will, for you know four days. Uh, that was something that was introduced in after Super Bowl 45 because it was felt that we wanted to take care of our partners better. Uh, doing more for fans that were able to experience things from behind the scenes like a fan accessible media day that you could come and there'd be a show which is media day itself uh previously closed to the public that came out of the difficulties of super bowl 45 um super bowl boulevard uh something that that uh, or super bowl village as it was called in indianapolis the next year uh that was something that the city did and the host committee did uh, but that we continued on into New Orleans and New York and then and then ultimately uh, Phoenix last year and this year in San Francisco. So making things more accessible, 
um, and also concentrating the activity in a smaller area so that you could tell where Super Bowl lived um, without having to go you know, 40 miles from one end of Super Bowl to the other. It was more important to concentrate activity so that all the excitement would be in a place that you could get to and visit and spend the day or the weekend. Frank Sapovitz, former NFL, now runs Fast Traffic, his own company, facility development, event development company more precisely. What do you think of the long-term future of the Super Bowl? The biggest complaint people have, I guess, is the is the perception of inaccessibility to the common fan, the high prices, the corporate suites, and the like. You just explained why some of that is erroneous, but will the Super Bowl move to something that is almost inherently corporate, or is there an opportunity for that middle ground? Well, it, it's, I think it's going to continue to be expensive uh, and difficult to, to get a ticket to, uh, so it'll be exclusive in that regard. I don't believe that it really is corporate. Um, there are clearly corporate parties, but at the end of the day, 35% of the tickets go directly to the teams of that are competing in the Super Bowl. So 17.5% uh, of, the, of the ticket inventory goes to one team or the other. And, uh, and, and I will tell you, having, having been in the stadium for more than 10, ten Super Bowls, we know that there, there are fans in the stadium. Uh, they spend a lot of money to be there. Um, but there, there are clearly fans, and, and look at in the audience at any Super Bowl, and you'll see at least two sets of jerseys uh, represented there. So uh, are, are corporations there? Absolutely. Are some of those 35% going to corporate partners of, of, the, uh, of the clubs, or are they going to suite holders and club seat holders? Sure. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of fans who really want that bucket list experience, and they are going to Super Bowl, uh, no question about it. The, the, the larger population of fans are going to the fan festivals uh, throughout the course of the week, and that's where they're having you know, the very best time that they possibly can. Uh, so I don't believe it's, it's entirely corporate, but I do agree that it's incredibly expensive. Uh, and it's going to continue to get expensive because the supply is small, Stadiums are getting smaller, um, so there's, there's going to be fewer uh, tickets available. And uh, once upon a time, there was a minimum of 70,000 tickets that you, that you had to make available, or you had to have a seating capacity of at least 70,000. Now it's not, it's not a requirement anymore. So you will see, and you have seen, uh, stadiums with less than 70,000 seats host a Super Bowl, like in Indianapolis, for example, and that's okay, uh, because what, what the NFL is looking at is, uh, is, is putting the best experience together in the best buildings, and, uh, and Indianapolis was one of those. A couple more left. One is about the scarcity of Super Bowls. Give us your crystal ball prediction now that you're no longer part of the decision-making process on this. What's the rotation look like long-term? The tourist destination infrastructure venues always get their regular rotation slots, I assume. What about the northern undomed Super Bowl process and those communities in the middle? You know, sketch, sketch out what you think a, uh, a 20-year Super Bowl window looks like. I, I think that you'll continue to see Super Bowls in favorite locations uh, 
that that fans have come to expect. Uh, clearly, Miami is is uh, a perennial favorite. Uh, New Orleans is a perennial favorite. You know, those are cities that that frankly are an event to go to, and and you don't even have to do that much to make it a great experience because those are great places to go. Uh, I think you're going to see a Super Bowl get back to Southern California just as soon as you have teams in Southern California. Um, I, I don't think that's going to take very long at all. Um, and then I think that will go back into what you called the rotation. Um, it's, it's, it's inevitable, and I think it's the right thing. Um, so the warm weather opportunities the, you know, create great experiences, but, but football is a cold-weather sport. No question. I think after that, uh, you'll see it continue to go to new stadiums. Um, Minneapolis clearly is going to be hosting a, a Super Bowl in, in 2018 because it's a new stadium, uh, just like Indianapolis hosted it in 2012 because it was a new stadium, uh, the Superdome because it was a renovated stadium. Uh, you know, Miami is in queue right now because it's both a warm weather and a new stadium or largely renovated stadium by the time they're done with it. Uh, Atlanta's in the mix because of their new stadium. So I, I think it's, it's a great incentive for, uh, for uh, municipalities and, and markets to, to be able to attract Super Bowls and the economics that, that are behind a Super Bowl. No, no question in my mind. Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh. then you asked about, yeah, you asked about the cold weather, and, and frankly, New York, New Jersey broke that mold. Yep. Um, the, it, was a, it was a tremendous uh, Super Bowl experience. It was 12 degrees uh, Fahrenheit when we opened Super Bowl Boulevard, but it was 51 degrees when we kicked off the ball. So it's, it's not a great indicator game-wise, um, but in terms of people being out in the cold, they were out in the cold by the millions. Uh, so can or should or will Pittsburgh or um, Charlotte or uh, Nashville or other outdoor stadiums that would be in the elements that would be cold, colder, or coldest, I, I think that those, are, those opportunities are out there. I think, uh, I, I think that there's some great intrigue to playing the Super Bowl out in the cold, as long as you have the infrastructure to be able to support a Super Bowl in that city. There you have it, giving thousands of mayors and other communities leaders hope that it really is possible, including the gutsy move of the week and the most creative move you've ever seen is that the Steeler Brain Trust applies for Super Bowl 57, knowing full well that Heinz Field sponsors 57 flavors of ketchup. So that's about the most uh, bizarre and intriguing matchup ever. Do they get 57? What do you think? I don't know. If, uh, San Francisco <laughs> didn't get 49. They got 50. Yeah, um, that's well. That, listen, that's yeah. what Frank. That's what Frank Sapovitz is on for, for some historical perspective. Thank you very much, Frank. Really appreciate it. Uh, you got it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. The producer of the show is Alex Cohen. Audio producer Adam Wieson. Technical assistance provided by Jamie Weber, Tanner Simpkins, and Carlos Waddick. The executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso.